Michael Yerke from Live Nation. I'm the president of talent for House of Blues Entertainment, and you're here at Promoter 101. Welcome back, friends. The day after the biggest night in music, the Grammys last night. Welcome to Promoter 101. Congrats to all the winners. I can't wait to talk about this. What a magical night, Luke. Some great performances, some lackluster performances. We're going to actually save all of that for the news this week, Dan. So Ep 125, that's coming up on Thursday. We'll do a full breakdown on the Grammys. But again, congrats to all the winners last night. Really, really great stuff. I don't know that I've ever seen the Staples Center more packed with amazing talent, Luke. Amazing talent. You just didn't realize there were that many stars in the galaxy and they fit them all in the Staples Center. You got to give it up for Lee for managing just such a beautiful venue that could host such a great award ceremony. Well, we're here. Episode 124, Promoter 101. We're going to keep rolling out some of the biggest names in the business to sit down with us. We're on quite the roll, Dan. Hey, and we're not going to let up right now because we've got belly ups, Michael Goldberg. And we've also got a war story from William Morris Endeavor, Nashville's Braden Roundtree. This is Marsha Vlasic, president of AGI Talent Agency on Promoto 101. Have you all figured out where you can hear us? If not, here's a bunch of places. Well, probably where you're listening to us right now. Spotify, iTunes, iHeart, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Music, and some other places too. Check it out. Subscribe. If you're making the trek across the pond to the International Live Music Conference on March 5th through the 8th, Steiny is going to have the honors of chairing, that's proper English, Dan, for moderating the Agents Panel for the 31st edition of that conference. Confirmed guests for the panel include K2's Sharon Richardson, X-Ray's Josh Jabber, and just added, this is this is new news ticking across here, Dan, WME's Brian Ahern and Paradigm's Tom Windish also making the trek across the pond. This is going to be a big session, Dan. Big congrats to Tom Windish, a daddy this week. Hats off to you and beautiful picture on the web celebrating that. Way to go, Tom. I was going to tell you to go register at ilmc.com, but go to Tom's Facebook page and see the picture of that new baby because there's nothing more exciting than that. Congratulations, Tom. If you do the social media thing, you're more than welcome to keep up with all the ramblings in between these bite-sized podcasts we're doing now. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I'm personally at W. Luke Pierce. Stan is at The Jew, and the show is at Promoters 101. That's Promoters Promoters, plural. Doesn't have to be, though. We got the regular Promoter 101 now, too. Thanks to Jason. Jason Bernstein, AG, killing it. Hey, if you want to email us, you can uh, reach out to us at steiny at promoter101.net. Tell us who you think we should have on the podcast next. We may not listen to you because we do what we want, and you can't make us do anything. That's a little truth there. But um, we do like your suggestions, and sometimes you have some really good ones, and then sometimes you have some really stupid ones. We'll weed out the stupid ones or try to, and we'll use our own stupid ones. How about that? Hey, I want to take a minute and talk about Philly. Thank you for all of the people that came out in the cold to hang out. It was amazing. And Jeff Gordon did a great interview that just aired on the podcast. And 
the feedback's amazing. Absolutely. We appreciate all the calls and texts. This podcast, 124, is airing on Monday, but it's been an entire weekend full of great response to that interview. And thanks again to everybody at the University of the Arts for hosting us, for all the Live Nation and Point Entertainment folks for coming on afterwards. It was a great interview. Really glad we could showcase one of the best minds, one of the best strategists in the business right now. So if you haven't checked it out, go back, listen to episode 123 with Jeff Gordon live in Philadelphia. Hey, it's Joshua Knight from the Paradigm Agency coming to you live from Promoter 101. Dan, we got some birthdays this week, February 12th to the 18th, 2019. Tuesday the 12th is NS2's Darren Lashinsky. You know, it's his birth rate to promote shows as he is second generation concert promoter. And that is a rare thing. So let's honor that. Also, Lucy Lawler Freeze, Joe Giordano Jr., like the pizza place, I think. Yeah. And... Ashley Cap, so a whole bunch of legendary promoters and a very cool venue guy. It's Tuesday the 12th, all celebrating their birthdays. On Wednesday the 13th, we're wishing a happy birthday to Omar Al-Jalani, Kel Houston, Jackie Miller-Nob. Thursday the 14th of February in the year of our Lord. Amy Morrison, Jenny Heifetz, and Zach Kuhn. On Friday the 15th, wishing a happy birthday to Christine Kane and Mary Gorey. Saturday the 16th, Rolling Stones, Steve Knopper, Tim McKenna, Country Rebels, Kevin Blue, and the Initians, Pat Buchanan. Talk about a day on Saturday. Holy shit, happy birthday to all those fuckers. <laughs> on Sunday the 17th, we're around the corner here this week, wishing a happy birthday to Jason Flom, Black Box's Livia Tortella, Steve Zapp, and Damon Metzner. And Monday the 18th, the sole birthday to Harris Lewis, a great friend of the industry and God, somebody I just look up to. Happy birthday to everybody this week from the gang at Promoter 101. Mike Luba, Madison S. Presents, Promoter 101. Up next on the podcast, we're here with a war story with WME's Braden Roundtree. Great. Braden Roundtree. Yeah, man. You know, I uh, try to be as detail-oriented as possible and try to read every line of a deal memo, but sometimes I don't, just being honest. Yeah, I'm known for missing half the sentence sometimes. Yeah, I try to trust the people around me to help read through these things. But I had an artist who really wanted to go to Europe, and we finally got an opportunity for them to go play a festival in Europe, and then we had put some club shows around it. And so the money was low. I have no idea why, but I assumed that the offer was for an acoustic performance on this festival. And so even though it said, you know, X amount of money, Plus six flights. I'm like, oh, sweet. They can take over who they want. <laughs> take over the mom and dad, their, uh, their girlfriend. That's so generous. Yeah, man, that's really awesome. So the festival was booked six months out. The artist goes over there. They get there. <laughs> I get a call from the festival buyer. It's like, what the hell? Where's the rest of the band? I was like, what do you mean? Where's the rest of the band? It was an acoustic performance. He's like, no, this offer was sent for a full band. Plus six flights for the band. I was like, uh... Oh, okay, crap. Well, I guess we got to figure it out. So we helped find some local musicians in London and set up a place for them to practice and get the set down. And they ended up pulling it off full band. So how long before the show played did they figure out that he came over solo? The day before. So this was really like scramble time. Oh, yeah. Scramble time. Now, he, he was able to do the little sideshows acoustic, but... Yeah, we had to scramble and, you know, we graciously waived our commission so that they could pay for these musicians. Because technically that was your fuck up. Yes, 100%. You know, we, we had to make it right with the buyer, too, because he had provided international flights, which aren't cheap. So the moral of the story is read every line of the deal memo and read every line of the offer. 
it's funny as many moisters we've had not too often do people out themselves i actually really appreciate that's pretty stand up you have to man you have to own up to it you have to apologize you have to say i'm sorry and you have to do the right thing it must have been really handy to have a william morris london office at that moment i assume oh yeah big time (laughs) they helped a lot (laughs) not a bad thing to be a global company at this point yep true story awesome thanks man yeah yeah watch for a full interview with Braden coming up on promoter 101 in the weeks to come hey it's mary hilliard harrington with red light management you're listening to promoter 101 it is time to announce the promoter 101 badass of the week now i know a lot of you think maybe this is my week well it's not unless you happen to be red lights kevin morris who just is one of the best managers in the world making him this week's badass of the week well done kevin well done indeed hey and if you don't happen to be kevin morris maybe you'll be the badass next week but because there's billions of people on the planet the odds are against you I'm Nick Storch from Arts Group International, and I'm on Promoter 101. In our featured interview this week, we're joined by the Belly Up's Michael Goldberg, who's here to teach us about how to run a top-tier venue in a smaller market, as well as maybe a few restaurants, and have a brother who was an undefeated WCW champion of the world. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for being an Aspen. When it comes to the city, you have changed the music scene epically by bringing the Belly Up to this town. Well, it's changed my life epically and added to it. In particular, I get to work with two of my three boys who are doing the vast majority of the booking at the club and have done everything from box office to kitchen to security uh, as they were growing up. Uh, I work for them now, but in the time that they were living in Aspen, because all my boys, all three of them grew up in Aspen, went to school here. When we started the club, which was in 05, and they were teenagers, they uh, had a place where I could keep my eye on them. You brought what is now a very successful music franchise to this market, but no one would have known for sure if this community could support a club and particularly the talent level that you've been able to bring in. It was a risky venture to say the least. Well, this little town has a uh, history of culture, not necessarily limited to music by any stretch of the imagination. Music in particular has been here for a very long time and still is to a large part with the Aspen Music Festival in school, doing an eight-week festival every summer, teaching festival. So I don't think it was out of the realm of possibilities that Aspen would support music. And I say music for music's sake as opposed to being supporting a club. We prefer to think of ourselves as a music venue rather than a nightclub or just a club, although size-wise, I suppose, we're a club. Well, your level of production certainly is superior than most of the venues of the same capacity anywhere else in the country. You guys have bands that underplay your room frequently, and you're able to accommodate them because you've invested in really solid production. Well, I think the first thing I have to do is thank Aspen for that, because I doubt there are many places that could really pull this off. I also can say that it's largely the result of my sons, David and Danny, taking over for the better part of the last eight years, having a continual drive toward wanting the production to be the best it can be, which often means the latest and the greatest as opposed to just another thing. You know, there's a lot of, I think we're in our third iteration of a video wall and they just get better and better and better. But You know, at some point, I suppose, you know, there's a point of diminishing return, but we haven't figured it out yet. There's certainly something to be said for the fact that the people that live here can afford to pay a little bit more, which makes it so you can bring some of those artists at what might be a higher ticket for them anywhere else in the country. 
but make it so they can play a venue a little bit smaller than they're playing anywhere else in the country. Well, I think that's to a large degree the result of the fact that Aspen is Aspen. Whatever it is that attracts the tourists, which make up during the season for us and that summer season as well as winter and now what's become a relatively long shoulder season of most of September and even into October and certainly a part of April, that's about 65% of the tickets that we sell. I think it would be difficult, bluntly, for this town to sustain the caliber of music that we bring with the attendant inevitable ticket pricing, high ticket pricing, if it were just the town supporting us as opposed to tourists. Right, because you need 5% of the population to sell at your club on any given night if you were just relying on the locals. Well, true. but And there are times of year where that percentage is much greater than the 35% that would be locals for a big act. But that, again, tends to be more the shoulder season. Ultimately, we're a music venue. And so really, the reason people come to the club is who's on stage. And I think with that relatively small number of full-time people here, at some point, we'd run out of interesting ideas. I mean, there's any number of ski towns around the world that can sustain live music, but not many of them that can sustain this amount of live music. We do 300 plus shows a year with the type of acts that often play here. And again, I tell you that I don't know where else you could do that, but Aspen. The music business isn't a long-term thing for you. It's obviously a continual business, but it isn't where you started your entrepreneurial roots and you, your roots go deep as far as being an entrepreneur. I came to that late in life and serendipitously, I think, if you had asked me in early 2004, would I ever be a promoter? The, I mean, it would be no, I, it's never anything that crossed my mind. But you've got a mind for business. You run one of the most successful restaurants in town. You have the ability to go in and you're a businessman. There's an airline charter plane business too that you've run successfully, right? Well, I've been in the aircraft leasing business since I was in college. And so that's been my predominant and still is a big part of my life. Although I have a, a younger partner who, you know, who I would be remiss if I didn't say, or I'd be lying, frankly, if I didn't say he runs the business now. But I've been doing, you know, I was doing that for a long time. Music is a lot more fun now. I mean, airplanes have always been fun. I still fly. And I like that very cyclical business. But it's it's a little bit like this. I mean, I liken uh, being a promoter a little bit to going to Las Vegas and gambling all the time, which is not what I like doing. But the airplane business is that way. And I think the restaurant business to a lesser degree. But I also think, I think I'd get bored if I did the same thing all the time. As a restaurateur, bringing... Nobu to Aspen seems like a natural fit. Well, let me be clear. I didn't bring Nobu to Aspen. I got involved in Matsuhisa just as it opened at the time I was spending a fair amount of time with the aviation business in New York, and there already was a Nobu there. And I loved the food, so when the opportunity came to be involved, I took advantage of that opportunity. It also gave me the opportunity to be in business with my brother, Steve, who's three years uh, younger than I am, who's been in the restaurant business his whole adult life. And oh, by the way, bought the original Belly Up, which is in Solana Beach, California, opened in 1974. And he bought it, I believe, early 2004, late 2003. So there was a natural, I mean, I had a roadmap for sure. So, I mean, I could look to him and say, should I do this? Which, of course, he said no. Oh, really? 
Sure. Well, he told me no in the music business, too. And uh, yet somehow both of them happened. Yeah, the restaurant business was not Matsuhisa. It, was, it preceded that by probably uh, 12, 13 years where I told him I had an opportunity to invest in a uh, opening round with some friends of mine of a new restaurant concept. And my brother had said that if I opted to invest in the restaurant business that he would disown me. Was it that particular investment? No. <laughs> uh, that was California Pizza Kitchen. <laughs> it kind of worked out. No, no, I didn't invest in that. Yeah, but it worked out for those guys. Yeah, it worked out for them, but um, it might have hurt my brother's credibility somewhat. Let me just say this. The catalyst for me deciding to get involved in the music business was more likely the fact that when I brought it up to him after he had taken over the original Belly Up, and he said immediately... You'll hate it, so don't do it. My next thought was, where do I sign? Now, you've got great locations in Aspen. Property here is super expensive, and you've got two of the highest foot traffic locations in town. Does the success of both businesses have anything to do with where they're, they sit, do you think? Uh, only to the extent that they're in Aspen, in my opinion. Ultimately, I think people are product-driven. I wouldn't do this music thing if I didn't love music. So first and foremost, I'm going to be very clear about this, and notwithstanding the commentary about being a businessman, there are a lot of businesses which I would never entertain simply because they're not interesting to me. Music is a passion, and I have to be clear about that. To the extent that having a business background helps in trying to navigate being a promoter in what is you know, probably a tertiary market town, 50 miles off of I-70. So I guess we're we're not exactly in the middle of nowhere, but we're kind of in the middle of nowhere. We're three and a half hours from Denver. Does location mean something? As I you know, tried to make clear earlier, I think Aspen is a unique opportunity for both of those businesses, both for Matsuhisa as well as a music venue in the, in the case of Belly Up. First of all, Aspen's pretty darn small, so it's not exactly like foot traffic is what drives or location really drives the popularity of someplace. I'm I'm very much of a mind that it's what I put on stage and what I put on the table, or rather what our chefs put on the table, that is the attraction. And if I were somewhat out of town, I don't think it'd be any different. doesn't hurt, though, that the bus, when it parks in front of your club, is two blocks from the mountain, facing right at it. Look, it doesn't hurt that the mountain is two blocks or a block from the club and we face right at the mountain. No question about that, but as you know, we're subterranean, and so once you come down the stairs, you know, I could be next to the ocean, you wouldn't know the difference. So again, I maintain it's what I have on stage. So your brothers, you mentioned Steve is successful in the restaurant business, right? I'd be remiss not to mention that Bill Goldberg, the, the professional wrestler, who's probably one of the most successful, is also a relative. Uh, he is my 18-year younger brother, an ex-football player, as was both Steve and me. Don't think he's ever going to be in the music business, but he loves music and he's got a lot of friends in the music business. And I can promise you I'm never going to be in the wrestling business. You guys just don't do anything half-ass. It's just super full throttle, huh? We have a family history of going for the gusto, I guess. Have you always worked for yourself? Have you always been an entrepreneur? Or how did you come into the business world on your own? I grew up in Oklahoma. I went to the University of Minnesota to play football in the 60s. I thought I'd be a physician like my father. It was what my goal was when I went away to school. I relatively quickly determined that there was a lot of time committed to football. In theory, a lot of time that one had to commit to class, especially if you wanted really to be a doctor. And I relatively quickly figured out how cold Minneapolis was. Football, you had to show up. Class, theoretically, you had to show up. You know, I really didn't have what I 
thought I had in terms of that desire to be um, a doctor, which took an awful lot of time in class. So that gave me a little bit of spare time, at which point I decided for whatever reason, after becoming a bouncer at a few clubs and uh, working in the summers in the oil fields back in Oklahoma, maybe try another passion, and that was flying. So my junior year, I learned to fly. And I would go back to Oklahoma in the summer, and I met someone who asked me if I wanted to go to work. That was great because I loved airplanes. I got to fly. I got to fly big kind of exotic airplanes and learned a business. Certainly, as I mentioned, you know, spent a lot of years in the oil fields before I ever got into this. So I think this was really my first venture into real, you know, anything other than just earning a paycheck. Did that for two summers. Didn't make it in the NFL. Hung around Minnesota coaching freshman football after my eligibility was up. And one day I got a call from a guy I was working for in Tulsa. And he said, are you ever going to leave school? I said, why? He offered me a job. When do you want me to start? tomorrow. So I left that day and moved back to Tulsa for a month or so. He moved me to Miami to open an office. And we were together probably 12, 13 years. And that was all in the aviation business. Along with that, I got an introduction to the trading world, I guess I should say. As I look back at those things that I've been involved in, I consider myself one of the luckiest people that I've ever met. And one, because I'm doing things that I'm passionate about. So if you can make your avocation a vocation, it's not really like, I mean, I don't feel like I go to work, uh, notwithstanding the fact that there are challenges, but that's part of the game. And add to that the opportunity to be with my boys every day. So I don't think there's anybody luckier than I am. I'm not a good investor. I don't do passive things. So if I find something I love, then it's really not work. So how realistic of a dream was the NFL while you were coming up through college? Was that the goal? Well, after deciding that uh, medicine wasn't the future, that seemed like the natural path for me. But I didn't quite have the talent to make it to the NFL. I wasn't drafted and have always tried to be a realist. And I thought my chances even going as a free agent, especially back then, were just not as good. And I, I really didn't want to do that. You decided that maybe this was as far as your competitive level was going to raise to it. I think I had a pretty good idea of what my competitive level was. And I was a decent college football player and started for a number of years. And at the end of the day, that's a tough business, that NFL. I mean, the only one of my family who's made in the NFL was my brother, Bill. And he, he did a total of five years. And that was tough for him. Must have been a crazy moment to watch his run as a wrestler. And I, I know he made a comeback very recently for a, a quick cameo of events. But he had a run where he was the biggest thing in wrestling. Nothing could touch him. He was a superstar. Yeah, well, I also think that it's better to be lucky than good sometimes. And he was lucky and good, not to take anything away from him, but he came about at a time that in the very early stages of what he did, he became a superstar. The luck part of that is being at the right place at the right time. What's the right place? He was picked up in the expansion draft. Um, he was playing with the Falcons his last few years, and he had a groin injury, had surgery, uh, the recovery wasn't full, ended up with Carolina and was the first person to be cut. Well, that was because he flunked his physical and he flunked his physical because of the injury. So was that, you know, that was five years. NFL is what, three and a half years in terms of the average stay. So was that fortuitous that he got hurt and that he couldn't play out his real passion and needed something to do? I mean, he worked for me a short period of time in the aviation business and he was never destined for that. So he needed to find something that he could be passionate about. And I remember, I mean, he was a workout nut in the gym in Atlanta, 
some wrestlers said, you know, you, you got to give this a try. And I know he was very much against it and thought the idea of running around in your underwear in front of thousands of people was a, was a crazy idea. But somehow he made the commitment. And I recall watching his first match at Universal Studios, I believe it was, down at Disney World in Orlando. I mean, they knew that day that he had a future. I don't think anybody knew that the future was quite, you know, was going to take him as far as it took him. But his physique was just so massive. It just, he was a cartoon character. <laughs> no question. Well, if you know my brother, he's a cartoon character anyway. Obviously, it's clear family is a big part of your life and part of your success and part of your, your happiness. When you think about your career, the successes are easy to see. The restaurants, the club, the family. But nobody has the kind of success you have without having failure. What are some of the stumbles along the way? Well, I think it was a disappointment not to have the opportunity to play football any further than I did. I guess that's a stumble. You know, I had my first opportunity in the aviation business and had a guy who believed in me and we became uh, partners for a number of years. And that relationship ended at a time that I didn't predict. And I guess that was a stumble, at least at the time I thought it was a stumble. If you're in a business like the transport aircraft leasing business, you're going to have failures and, and because it's a very speculative business. And if you're a promoter, you know, there are going to be sometimes less than 450 people in the room uh, on a very expensive show. So is that a failure? I, I guess that's an individual failure. But I mean, apart from that, I can't look really backwards. You know, I'm, I'm, frankly, I'm trying to grab at straws here to talk about what failures, because I don't think those things that have been stumbling blocks for me have been anything other than just an opportunity to find a different partner, a different path, a different dynamic in in a specific business. And so really, back to the lucky part, if I was half as lucky as I am, I'd still be probably the happiest person I know. So before I let you go, can you give some advice for the younger generation coming up in the business? Well, as I said earlier, if you're not lucky enough to find something that you love, and you can make money from that or get a paycheck from that, do everything you can, work as hard as you can, give it every opportunity, learn as much as you can, and follow that dream because there are a whole lot of people in this world that don't love going to work every day. Specifically, as it relates to the music business, if you don't love music, you shouldn't be working here. If you are in love with music, figure out a way to get paid from it, whether you're an artist, uh, somebody behind the bar, whatever that is, and hang in there with it because I think you not only have an opportunity as that for a vocation, but there are some amazing hair-raising experiences. And by that, I mean exciting experiences of just that entertainer being on stage. Thank you so much, Michael, for taking time. My pleasure. Michael is truly an entrepreneur, and he really is just inspiring to listen to. You want to just go out and start investing in like planes and clubs and restaurants and realize that He's him, and then the rest of us are mortal because it ain't as easy as he makes it look. We're all living in Michael Goldberg's world. It really is impressive the things that he can pull off. It's just like he sees it, he thinks it, he does it. The rest of us see what he does, and then we you know, go to dinner there or see a concert there because it's not as easy as he makes it look. Guy's incredible. Frank Wing, APA, Nashville, Promoter 101. The quote of the week comes to us from Martin Luther King Jr. Life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? Kind of makes you think, Luke, huh? All your quotes make us think here, Dan. But what are you doing for others? Well, for you, I'm trying to make sure your tour doesn't get fucked up by everyone trying to put their hands on the pot and me yelling at them to make sure your band gets to take all the money. I really appreciate that. Susan Rosenbluth, Golden Voice. 
on Promoter 101. That'll do it for episode 124 of Promoter 101. Big thanks to our guest this week, Belly Up's Michael Goldberg, WME's Braden Roundtree. Very excited to have both those guys on the podcast. Plus, we've got uh, some more stuff coming up, Dan. So if you want to give us uh, some feedback, let us know what you think of this podcast. Make sure you email us at steiny at promoter101.net. Hey, we'll be back Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and that's 8 p.m. on the East Coast, and that's even later. That's like midnight-ish in London. We're going to be back next week with WME's CJ Strock joining us on the podcast. And Graham Noel from Philly turns the tables on us. Looking forward to episode 125 of that podcast. We'll see you on Thursday, and until then, we're wishing you sold-out shows for the week ahead. Cheers. Call your mother. She's afraid to eat because she doesn't want to have a full mouth when you call. Call your mother. She misses you. Call him. Hey, it's Elliot Lesko, promoter from Golden Voice in Los Angeles on Promoter 101. Ooh. Ba-da-ba-ba. <laughs>